What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up the Ship podcast. This is Heritage Volume 5. It's been a minute. Um, I've been wanting to do this, uh, just another Heritage episode for a while. And for whatever reason, um, <laughs> I arrived at a, a topic people might, I mean, I think it's interesting, but people might think it's a little odd for me. Um, but I'm doing, I'm talking about underwater demolition teams, uh, and there's a reason. Uh, <laughs> In lieu of ever having a sponsor, I've basically created my own. If you want to support us, go to dgutsapparel.com. Don't give up the ship apparel. Uh, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at dgutsapparel. Uh, it's Naval Pride and Heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. I went out of my way to create some really awesome stuff that I think you'll really enjoy. And it's some stuff that I think you'll actually wear. Uh, I hate all the stuff in the Navy Exchange section. I hate a lot of the stuff I see on social media where some somebody's side hustle is creating like nauseating gear that no one actually wants except for like crusty old retirees, which I'm about to be. So I don't know if I should uh, talk smack, but anyway, uh, go check it out. Dgutsapparel.com. If you want to support us, that's the best way to do it. And I would really appreciate it. My uncle, uh, he's my late uncle. Uh, he passed away a few years ago at this point, uh, married my dad's sister was uh, a UDT guy and he would always do this thing where he'd uh, ask my dad to have me send him just like the Navy watch cap, like the black uh, beanie thing, I guess. It was something that they used quite a bit and uh, he just couldn't find anything like it anywhere else. So like every few years uh, before he passed away, my dad would have me ship him one. And unfortunately, I never got a chance to ever talk to him about it, learn anything about it. Um, and so... I started doing some research trying to learn about him uh, and then just got the idea to do the episode because I thought it would be cool. And I, I still do plan on trying to, I, I sent some emails off to like a, they have like a Navy personnel database and stuff. But anyway, who knows if I'll ever be able to find anything on him specifically. So in lieu of that, um, I, in doing my research, I found some really interesting stuff on just UDT. I was going to initially just do Naval Special Warfare, but it's such a broad topic that, and there's so much cool stuff about how UDT, like underwater demolition teams came to be even like all the stuff that came before that. So uh, focusing on that and, uh, and uh, Lieutenant Commander, later Rear Admiral Draper Kaufman. So let's get into it. Um, so the question a lot of people might, might ask when examining Navy SEALs is where do they come from? Uh, it turns out from a guy, the Navy kicked to the curb who had to fight and claw his way into service in the Navy at all, uh, which was the origin story of the Navy's very first frogman. It's super interesting and we'll get into it. Um, underwater demolition teams themselves are the precursors to the modern Navy SEALs. And I'll get into that a little bit at the end. Um, and they're born of the genius and dogged determination of Lieutenant commander. And again, like I mentioned, I'm going to call him Lieutenant commander throughout because at the time that's what he was, but he ended up, uh, retiring, a uh, rear Admiral Draper Kaufman. His dad was actually an Admiral too, interestingly enough, but Commander Coffin's story is extremely unique, uh, and I'm excited to share it. I, I basically started this as just a UDT episode, uh, and then I got really focused on uh, <laughs> this crazy dude that had to fight uh, just to serve, and then it led him all over the world and back again, and I'll get into all the details of that, uh, to end up being the, the nation's very first frogman and the legendary creator of what we now know as Hell Week. Uh, so let's begin. So... Uh, first, we'll go into background and it, it, a ton of amazing sources. I'm reading a lot of direct excerpts from the sources, so make sure you check those out in the show notes. Um, some really great articles. 
and just like uh, history information from like NavySeals.com, uh, from the National Archives. I got some pretty cool stuff. Uh, watched some really cool videos there of actual UDT guys, like black and white videos of them doing stuff. Uh, so those links are in there. Uh, Navy SEAL Museum, uh, National World War II Museum, softrep.com, really great article on Draper Kaufman that I highly recommend checking out. Uh, USNI, and uh, and then we'll get into the rest of it. The the picture for the, the episode came from Navy History and Heritage Command. Not actually a lot of great, there's a lot of cool pictures there, not a lot of great articles. Um, but for the background, we're going to get into like basically how UDT teams were born. So starting back in uh, World War II, um, so this is like Navy SEAL history. Today's SEALs embody in a single force the heritage, mission capabilities, and combat lessons learned of five daring groups that no longer exist, but were crucial to allied victory in World War II and the conflict in Korea. So there's a bunch of different groups that were precursors even to UDT teams. These were Army Scouts and Navy Raiders, Naval Combat Demolition Units, or NCDUs, the Office of Strategic Services, Operational Swimmers, and the OSS, as many of you know from like movies and video games and stuff, it's a precursor to the modern-day CIA, uh, and then Navy Underwater Demolition Teams, which is what we're focused on, and Motor Torpedo Boat Squadrons. These varied groups, uh, trained in the 1940s for urgent national security requirements, saw combat in Europe, North Africa, and the Pacific, but mostly disbanded after World War II. There was a couple teams left, and then they scaled back up for Korea. So, however, uh, UDTs were called upon again and expanded quickly for the Korean War in 1950. Exercising great ingenuity and courage, these special maritime units devised and executed with relatively few casualties, many of the missions, tactics, techniques, and procedures that SEALs still perform today. These missions included beach and hydro reconnaissance, explosive cable and net cutting, explosive destruction of underwater obstacles to enable major amphibious landings, which was obviously a big thing in World War II, uh, both in Europe and the Pacific, limpet mine attacks, submarine operations, and the locating and marking of mines for minesweepers. They also conducted river surveys and foreign military training. While doing this, the SEALs' predecessors pioneered combat swimming, closed-circuit diving, underwater demolitions, and mini-submarine dry and wet submersible operations. All those things you can see in those videos in the National Archives, and I highly recommend checking them out because it's it's very cool to see uh, that happening in, like in a film. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, so the OSS Maritime Unit, some of the earliest World War II predecessors of the SEALs were the operational swimmers of the OSS uh, British Combined Operations Veteran Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander Woolley of the Royal Navy was placed in charge of the OSS Maritime Unit in June 1943. Uh, their training started in November 1943 at Camp Pendleton, moved to Catalina Island in January 1944, and finally moved to the warmer waters in the Bahamas in March 1944. Within the U.S. military, they pioneered flexible swim fins and face masks, closed circuit diving equipment, the use of swimmer submersibles, and combat swimming and limpet mine attacks. In May 1944, Colonel Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the OSS, divided the unit into groups. He loaned Group 1 under Lieutenant um, Kyoti, Kyoti, Chio, uh, it's C H O A. 
T-E, not sure how to pronounce that, to Admiral Nimitz as a way to introduce the OSS into the Pacific Theater. They become, became part of UDT-10 in July 1944. Five OSS men participated in the very first UDT submarine operation with the USS Burfish, SS-312, in the Caroline Islands in August 1944. Uh, so onto the scouts and raiders. Uh, to meet the need for a beach reconnaissance force, they selected Army and Navy personnel assembled at amphibious training base Little Creek on 15 August 1942 to begin amphibious scouts and raiders joint training. Uh, the scouts and raiders mission was to identify and reconnoiter the objective beach, maintain a position on the designated beach prior to a landing and guide the assault waves to the landing beach. Uh, this obviously <laughs> came into play in World War II and was a huge need uh, at the time. And we'll get into like kind of how they recognize that and, and why they stood these things up later. Uh, the first group included Phil H. Bucklew, the father of Naval Special Warfare, after whom the Naval Special Warfare Center is named. Commissioned in October 1942, this group saw combat in November 1942 during Operation Torch, the first Allied landings in Europe on the North African coast. Scouts and raiders also supported landings in Sicily, Salerno, Anzio, Normandy, and southern France. The second group of scouts and raiders, codenamed Special Service Unit 1, was established on July 7th, 1943 as a joint and combined operations force. The first mission in September 1943 was at Finschafen on New Guinea. Later ops were at Gasmata Araway, <laughs> Cape Gloucester, hopefully I'm pronouncing these <laughs> locations correctly, and the east and south coast of New Britain, all without any loss of personnel. Conflicts arose over operational matters and all non-Navy personnel were reassigned. The unit, renamed 7th Amphibious Scouts, received a new mission to go ashore with the assault boats, buoy channels, erect markers for the incoming craft, handle casualties, take offshore soundings, blow up beach obstacles, and maintain voice communications linking the troops ashore, incoming boats, and nearby ships. The 7th Amphibious Scouts conducted operations in the Pacific for the duration of the conflict, participating in more than 40 landings. The third scout and raiders organization operated in China. Scouts and raiders were deployed to fight with the uh, Sino-American Cooperation Organization, or SACO. Uh, to help bolster the work of SACO, Admiral Ernest J. King ordered the, that 120 officers and 900 men be trained for Amphibious Roger at the Scout and Ranger School at Fort Pierce, Florida. They formed the core of what was envisioned as a guerrilla amphibious organization of Americans and Chinese operating from coastal waters, lakes, and rivers, employing small steamers and sampans. Uh, while most amphibious Roger forces remained at Camp Knox in Calcutta, three of the groups saw active service. They conducted a survey of the upper Yangtze River uh, in the spring of 1945 and disguised as coolies conducted a detailed three-month survey of the Chinese coast from Shanghai to Kichiawan near Hong Kong. Uh, so Naval Combat Demolition Units or NCDUs that we mentioned earlier. In September 1942, 17 Navy salvage personnel arrived at ATB Little Creek, Virginia for a one-week concentrated course 
on demolitions, explosive cable cutting, and commando raiding techniques. On 10 November 1942, this first combat demolition unit succeeded in cutting a cable and net barrier across the Wadi Sabu River during Operation Torch in North Africa. Their actions enabled the USS Dallas DD-199 to traverse the river and insert U.S. Army Rangers who captured the port uh, Laute. It's L-Y-A-U-T-E-Y. God, there's a lot of there's a lot of tough ones in here today. Airdrome. By April 1944, a total of 34 NCDUs were deployed to England in preparation for Operation Overlord, which was obviously D-Day, the amphibious landing at Normandy. Uh, so Draper Kaufman, this this is I got distracted by this. I went off on a bit of a tangent, almost just completely changed the episode to an episode about Draper Kaufman. And I may do that in the future. The only reason I didn't was because there's a book called America's First Frogman that I'm trying to get my hands on. And then uh, some interesting documents on USNI that I want to dig into. So I may actually deep dive on Draper Kaufman's life because he did a lot of really cool stuff later in his life um, that I'm not going to cover here. So. Uh, from the article on Draper Kaufman on SoftRep, which I highly recommend you checking out, um, apparently, like, so this was an, it was written by a Navy SEAL sniper, um, and he he mentions that UDT history is something that's only very briefly covered during SEAL training, uh, and to, which was surprising to him. Um, and he says one name that I couldn't avoid bumping into while digging through the archives was Draper Kaufman. Draper is an example of the fighting spirit housed in any man who pursues his life's goals without taking no for an answer. Draper's father was a Navy admiral, but it didn't do him much good to have that connection when the Navy denied his commission after graduating from the Naval Academy in 1933 due to poor eyesight. This is where, uh, and he talks about this, he's trying not to make the story any longer. He was going to write a second article um, that I couldn't find. I don't think he ever did. After being forced out of the Navy, Draper became a crew member on a New York-based steamship and soon found himself overseas in Germany, just as Hitler was forging the country into what the world would soon see in the 1940s. When Germany declared war on the rest of Europe, Draper volunteered in France as an ambulance driver, was captured briefly, and held by the Germans at Luneville. He was set free as Germany was not at war with America at the time and went on to serve as an officer in the British Navy, where he became experienced in demolitions as a bomb disposable disposal officer for the British. Plans for a massive cross-channel invasion of Europe had begun and intelligence indicated that the Germans were placing extensive underwater obstacles on the beaches at Normandy. On 7 May 1943, Lieutenant Commander Draper the father of naval combat demolition and America's first frogman uh, was directed to set up a school and train people to eliminate obstacles on an enemy held beach prior to an invasion. So he's now in the U.S. Navy at this point. He, he, I think he ended up he was in the reserves first. Uh, and then when World War Two happened, he got called into active service to set up that school. On 6 June 1943, Lieutenant Commander Kaufman established Naval Combat Demolition Unit Training at Fort Pierce, Florida. Most of Kaufman's volunteers came from the Navy's Engineering and Construction Battalion, so CBs. Training commenced with one grueling week designed to eliminate the men from the boys. <laughs> uh, some said that the men had sense enough to quit and left the boys. <laughs> it, was, it was and is still considered Hell Week. Uh, the training made the use of rubber boats and surprisingly little swimming. 
The assumptions were that men would paddle in and work in shallow water, leaving the deep water demolitions to the army. At this point, the men were required to wear Navy fatigues with shoes and helmets. They were ordered to be lifelined to their boats and stay out of the water as much as possible. Coffin's experience was at disarming explosives. Now he and his teams were learning to use them offensively. One innovation was to use 2.5 pound packs of tetral paste placed into rubber tubes thus making 20-pound lengths of explosive tube that could be manipulated around obstacles for demolition. There's a cool quote uh, about the school that Kaufman stood up from Elizabeth Kaufman Bush uh, from that book I mentioned, America's First Frogman. Uh, And she says they had an eight week training course with the idea of weeding out anybody who was not tough enough for the tremendous endurance that Kaufman envisioned would be required for the underwater demolition work. He asked the scouts and raiders to condense their eight week physical training course into one week for his trainees. The new students in the underwater demolition school were all to go through the week long physical conditioning course. And shortly before they arrived, the demolition demolition school's commander realized that he could not put them through such a grueling initiation without participating in it himself. And that's, of course, uh, Hell Week that we talked about a minute ago. Six men from Kaufman's Naval Combat Demolition Unit 11 were sent to England in the beginning of November 1943 to start preparations to clear the beaches for the Normandy invasion. Later, NCDU 11 was enlarged into 13-man assault teams. The scouts and raiders were also deployed to start their recon of the Normandy coast. General Rommel, Hitler's greatest military field marshal, had implemented the intricate defenses found on the French coastline. These creatively included steel posts driven into the sand and topped with explosives. Large three-ton steel barricades called Belgian gates were placed well into the surf zone. Additionally, he strategically placed reinforced mortar and machine gun nests. The scouts and raiders spent weeks gathering information during nightly surveillance missions up and down the French coast. Replicas of the Belgian gates were constructed on the south coast of England for the UDT to practice demolitions on. The strategy of the UDT was to knock the gates flat, not to shred and spread them along the beaches, thereby creating more of an obstacle for the advancing troops. Men armed with naval offshore artillery, which included bombs and shells, led the initial attack on the two American landing beaches of Omaha and Utah. Then a first wave of tanks and troop carriers were to land and clear any remaining German bunkers and snipers. The demolitions gap assault teams would come in with the second wave and work at low tide to clear the obstacles. As happens often during the fog of war, the Allied aircraft ended up dropping their bombs too far inland. Navy artillery then sent the majority of their shells far over the German positions, wreaking havoc on the French farmlands, but leaving the well-positioned German guns in perfect operating condition. These guns sent withering ground fire against the approaching Allied forces. The tides also ended up pushing many of the demolition crews well ahead of the first wave. They found themselves the first to land on the beaches. Many of the teams were killed by machine gun and mortar fire before reaching the beach. Other team members under enemy fire managed to set charges on the obstacles and blow them. At one point, soldiers were taking cover behind the obstacles, which were emplaced with demolitions charged with timers. The GIs quickly made their way onto the beaches to avoid becoming a friendly casualty of war. The mission was to open 16 50-foot-wide corridors for the landing. By nightfall, only 13 were open, and these beaches exacted a heavy toll on the Navy Gap assault teams. 
of the 175 NCDU and UDT men on Omaha Beach. 31 were killed and 60 were wounded. Their teammates on Utah Beach fared far better because the beach was considerably less fortified. Four were killed and 11 wounded when an artillery shell landed among one of the teams working to clear the beach. Weeks before the invasion, all available underwater demolition men were sent from Fort Pierce to England. The largest loss occurred at the landing on Omaha Beach, Normandy. Within months of the war's end, uh, the UDT teams were dispersed, or largely, right? We talked about that earlier. There was a couple uh, maintained, and then they scaled up during the Korean conflict. On 6 June 1944, in the face of great adversity, the NCDUs at Omaha Beach managed to blow eight complete gaps and two partial gaps in the German defenses. The NCDUs suffered 31 killed and 60 wounded, a casualty rate of 52%. Meanwhile, the NCDUs at Utah Beach met less intense enemy fire, as we just talked about. They cleared 700 yards of beach in two hours, another 900 yards by the afternoon. During Operation Overlord, not a single demolition ear was lost due to improper handling of explosives. So UDT in the Pacific. After a major catastrophe on the island of Tarawa, the need for UDT in the South Pacific became glaringly clear. The islands in this region have unpredictable tide changes and shallow reefs that can easily thwart the progress of the naval transport vessels. At Tarawa, the first wave made it across the reef in Amtrak's, but the second wave in Higgins' boats got stuck on a reef left exposed by low tide. The Marines had to unload and wade to shore. Many drowned or were killed before making it to the beach. The Amtrak's, without reinforcements from the second wave, were slaughtered on the beach. It was a valuable lesson that the Navy would not permit to be repeated. The Navy combat swimmers were turned to for an answer. The 5th Amphibious Force set up training at Waimanalo on the coast of Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands. Attending were men from Fort Pierce, as well as men from the Army and Marines. Represented were the scouts and raiders, as well as the naval combat demolitions teams. They hastily trained for the attack on Kwajalein on 31 January 1944. This was a major turning point for the tactics of the UDT. The plan was to send in night reconnaissance teams, such as the scouts and raiders were accustomed to. Then Admiral Turner, worried about the presence of obstacles in place by the Japanese, ordered two daylight recon operations that I'm sure they were super psyched about. The missions were to follow the standard procedure. Team one was to go in a rubber boat in full fatigues, boots, life jackets, and metal helmets. The coral reef kept their craft too far from shore to be certain of the beach conditions. Ensign Lewis F. Lures and Chief Bill Atchison uh, made a decision that changed the shape of naval special warfare forever. Removing all but their underwear, they swam undeterred across the reef. They returned with sketches of the beach gun embankment locations, along with information about a log wall built to deter landings and other vital intelligence. Naval combat swimming had now entered onto the mission essential task list of the UDT. After Quigellan, I hope I'm saying that one right, uh, the UDT created the Naval Combat Demolition Training and Experimental Base on Maui. Operations began in April 1944. Most of the procedures from Fort Pierce had been modified, with importance placed upon developing strong swimmers. Finally. <laughs> That's crazy to me that they didn't initially focus on that. Um, extensive training was conducted in the water without lifelines, using face masks and wearing swim trunks and shoes in the water. 
the new this new model gave us the image that stands today of the, the World War Two UDT naked warrior. Uh, if you want to see, this is the stuff that I found the the videos of on the National Archives, and again, links are in the description. I highly recommend checking them out. It's it's super interesting to see the way that they did the very early versions of all the stuff um, with just like you know or some like rudimentary fins and a and a like a swim mask uh, and that's it really. I mean, they had like a knife strapped to their their waist, and they were just in like essentially skivvies it's, it's pretty cool i highly recommend checking out those videos the landings continued and at iwo jima the surveying teams fared favorably the largest casualties of the udt occurred not in the water but aboard the u.s or aboard the destroyer uss blessman when a japanese bomber hit it when the bomb exploded in the mess hall 15 men on the udt team were killed 23 others were injured this was by far the most tragic loss of life suffered by the udt in the pacific theater up until now, all the islands worked upon were in the southern waters. Soon, the forces moved north toward Japan. Having no thermal protection, the UDT men were at risk for hypothermia and severe cramps. This problem was extreme during the surveying of Okinawa. The largest UDT deployment in the war employed veteran teams 7, 12, 13, 14, and newly trained teams 11, 16, 17, and 18. Close to a thousand UDT forces worked in concert on operations both real and deceptive to create the illusion of landing in other locations. Pointed poles set into the coral reef of the beach protected the landing beaches on Okinawa. Teams 11 and 16 were sent in to blast the poles. After all the charges were set, the men swam to clear the area, and the following explosion took out all of Team 11's and half of Team 16's targets. Team 16 broke from the operation due to the death of one of their men, hence their mission was considered a failure and a disgrace. Team 11 was sent back the following day to finish the job and then remained to guide the forces to the beach. The UDT continued to prepare for the invasion of Japan. After the atomic bomb exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the war quickly ended. The need for an invasion of Japan was averted and the UDT's role in the South Pacific came to an end. All told, 34 UDT teams were established. Wearing swimsuits, fins, and face masks on combat operations, these naked warriors saw action across the Pacific in every major amphibious landing, including, <laughs> here goes the pronunciations again, uh, uh, Inuitok, Saipan, Guam, Tinian, Anguar, uh, Ulithi, or Ulithi, not sure, uh, Pelelu, Leyte, Lingayan, Gulf, Zambales, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, Labuan, Brunei Bay, uh, and on 4 July 1945 at Balak Papan on Boreno, which was the last UDT demolition operation of the war. The rapid demobilization at the conclusion of the war reduced the number of active duty UDTs to two on each coast with a complement of seven officers and 45 enlisted men each. So that was the big scale down that, that I talked about earlier and that was mentioned in those articles, right, was uh, they didn't get completely eliminated, but they were, they were rapidly demobilized post-war, maintaining two teams on each coast. Then the Korean War happened. <laughs> so the Korean War began on 25 June 1950 when the North Korean Army invaded South Korea, beginning with a detachment of 11 personnel from UDT-3, UDT participation expanded to three teams with a combined strength of 300 men. 
During the Forgotten War, the underwater demolition teams fought heroically and with little fanfare. The UDT started to employ demolition expertise gained from World War II and adapt it to an offensive role, continuing the effective use of the water as cover and the concealment, as well as method of insertion, the Korean-era UDT targeted bridges, tunnels, fishing nets, and other maritime and coastal targets. They also developed a close working relationship with the Republic of Korea UDT slash SEALs, whom they trained, which continues to this day. The UDT refined and developed their commando tactics during the Korean War, with their efforts initially focused on demolitions and mine disposal. Additionally, the UDT accompanied South Korean commandos on raids in the north to demo train tunnels. The higher ranking officers of the UDT frowned upon this activity because it was a non-traditional use of the naval forces which took them too far from the waterline. Due to the nature of the war, the UDT maintained a low operational profile. Some of the better known missions include the transport of spies to North Korea and the destruction of North Korean fishing nets used to supply the North Korean army with several tons of fish annually. As part of the Special Operations Group, or SOG, UDTs successfully conducted demolition raids on railroad tunnels and bridges along the Korean coast. On 15 September 1950, UDTs supported Operation Chromite, the amphibious landing at Incheon. UDT-1 and 3 provided personnel who went in ahead of the landing craft, scouting mudflats, marking low points in the channel, clearing fouled propellers, and searching for mines. Four UDT personnel acted as wave guides for the marine landing. In October 1950, UDT supported mine clearing operations in Wonson Harbor, where Frogman would locate and mark mines for minesweepers. On 12 October 1950, two U.S. minesweepers hit mines and sank. UDTs rescued 25 sailors from that uh, that October 1950 uh, sinking. The next day, William Giannotti conducted the first U.S. combat operation using an aqua aqualung when he dove on the USS Pledge. Uh, there's also a video of them using those aqualungs. It's like I'm serious. You should seriously check out these videos. Uh, the, for the remainder of the war, UDTs conducted beach and river reconnaissance, infiltrated guerrillas behind the lines from sea, continued minesweeping operations, and participated in Operation Fishnet, which severely damaged the North Korean fishing capability. The Korean War was a period of transition for the men of UDT. They tested their previous techniques limits and defined new parameters for their special style of warfare. These new techniques and expanded horizons positioned the UDT well to assume an even broader role as the storms of war began brewing in the south in the Vietnamese peninsula. So the, the, the legacy is effectively Navy SEALs, right? So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about that and then wrap this thing up. So President Kennedy, aware of situations in Southeast Asia, and uh, particularly, obviously, Vietnam, recognizes the need for unconventional warfare and utilize special operations as a measure against guerrilla activity. In a speech to Congress in May 1961, Kennedy shared his deep respect of the Green Berets. He announced the government's plan to put a man on the moon and in the same speech allocated over $100 million toward the strengthening of the special forces in order to expand the strength of the American conventional forces. Realizing the administration's favor of the Army's Green Berets, the Navy needed to determine its role within the special forces arena. In March of 1961, the Chief of Naval Operations recommended the establishment of guerrilla and counter-guerrilla units. These units would be able to operate from sea, air, or land. This was the beginning of the official Navy SEALs. 
many SEAL members came from the Navy's UDT units who had already gained experience in commando warfare in Korea. However, the UDTs were still necessary to the Navy's amphibious force. The first two teams were on opposite coasts, Team 2 in Little Creek, Virginia, and Team 1 in Coronado, California. The men of the newly formed SEAL teams were educated in such unconventional areas as hand-to-hand combat, high-altitude parachuting, safe-cracking, demolitions, and languages. Among the varied tools and weapons required by the teams was the AR-15 assault rifle, a new design that evolved into today's M16. Uh, The SEALs attended UDT replacement training, and they spent some time cutting their teeth at a UDT team. Upon making it to a SEAL team, they would undergo a three-month SEAL basic indoctrination training class at Camp Carey in the Cuyamaca Mountains. Hopefully, I didn't butcher that. <laughs> after after SBI training class, they would enter a platoon and train in platoon tactics, especially for the conflict in Vietnam. Um, the legacy itself, I, like I, I was looking into like the Navy SEAL side of it, uh, and what I thought would be really cool, uh, is to kind of capture what they do, like kind of who they are and what they do now, which is like is effectively an ethos and they have one of those. So I'm going to read the Navy seal ethos and then, uh, we'll, we'll conclude. So in the times, in times of war or uncertainty, there's a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call, a common man with uncommon desire to succeed. Forged by adversity, he stands alongside America's finest special operations forces to serve his country, the American people, and protect their way of life. I am that man. My trident is a symbol of honor and heritage bestowed upon me by the heroes that have gone before. It embodies the trust of those I have sworn to protect. By wearing the trident, I accept the responsibility of my chosen profession and way of life. It is a privilege that I must earn every day. My loyalty to country and team is beyond reproach. I humbly serve as a guardian to my fellow Americans, always ready to defend those who are unable to defend themselves. I do not advertise the nature of my work, nor seek recognition for my actions. I voluntarily accept the inherent hazards of my profession, placing the welfare and security of others before my own. I serve with honor on and off the battlefield. The ability to control my emotions and my actions, regardless of circumstance, sets me apart from other men. Uncompromising integrity is my standard. My character and honor are steadfast. My word is my bond. We expect to lead and be led. In the absence of orders, I will take charge, lead my teammates, and accomplish the mission. I lead by example in all situations. I will never quit. I persevere and thrive on adversity. My nation expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will get back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my teammates and to accomplish our mission. I am never out of the fight. We demand discipline. We expect innovation. The lives of my teammates and the success of our mission depend on me. My technical skill, tactical proficiency, and attention to detail. My training is never complete. We train for war and fight to win. I stand ready to bring the full spectrum of combat power to bear in order to achieve my mission and the goals established by my country. The execution of my duties will be swift and violent when required, yet guided by the very principles that I serve to defend. Brave men have fought and died, building the proud tradition and feared reputation that I am bound to uphold. In the worst of conditions, the legacy of my teammates steadies my resolve and silently guides my every deed. I will not fail. 
very cool. <laughs> like it's kind of hard not to uh, get a little pumped. Like I want to go squat or something. Like it's <laughs> it's really cool. The Sealy Ethos, I I really I like it. Um, and it's it's very cool to kind of it's one of the I've only read it once or twice in the past for obvious reasons. I'm not a Navy SEAL and I don't I've only known like two in real life ever. <laughs> um, but like it's a very cool um, it's a very cool way in which they've crafted their ethos um, to be very it's very deliberate. It's very um, I guess you could say blunt, but it's also very rooted in uh service and selflessness selflessness and like just this determination and i really i thought it was very cool that um the second line here where it says a common man with an uncommon desire to succeed which is basically the life and times of draper kaufman <laughs> which again I'll, I'll probably get into a whole nother episode on draper kaufman because i think he's he's so interesting but um to wrap this thing up, uh, we talked about the history of naval special warfare, and particularly, particularly the underwater demolition teams and their precursors, and then the pivotal role played by Draper Coffin in their creation. Uh, UDT teams was—it was just cool. It was just something I've always wanted to look into, um, and particularly because my my uncle was uh, on a UDT team. Uh, I don't know which one. I don't. All I know is that I that I used to send him watch caps, but like, uh, I that was kind of what got my piqued my interest about doing some research on it, and then that led to the episode. But um, there, it was just cool, and it's really fun to see the kind of stuff that they used to do. Because um, if you think you're doing more with less now, go look at some of those videos, even the pictures. If you search UDT on Navy History and Heritage Command just wild um the what they were able to accomplish given the technology and and resources that they had available to them was absolutely mind-blowing um and yeah like the the whole thing just was super fun uh it was fun to explore a community that's not my own as well uh, like i was never on a submarine that did a bunch of seal ops stuff so like i never got to see them do what they do or be in a supporting role for that kind of stuff and then um it was fun to learn like uh, about the type of heritage that I is I'm so passionate about in relation to submarines and uh, culinary specialists and, and just the Navy in general and chiefs and stuff um, to, to research someone else's community, but also just something that it's, it's so cool. And it's like, it's fun to explore the origin story there and gets, it's like you get to, you get to relive your own in a new and exciting way. And if, and I know that sounds weird cause it's not, you know, like I'm not part of that community, but it's just fun to discover just the absolute insanity that like <laughs> that led to the creation. And it, you know, like you're, I, everyone's super impressed with the exploits of, of the seal teams and other special forces communities, but going back and watch it, like the videos blew my mind. I know I keep, keep mentioning that um, and check those links out, but like, just the the things they were able to accomplish was absolutely crazy um with that if you need anything from us hit us up don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com you can facebook message us don't give up the ship podcast or you can dm us on instagram or reddit or discord at dgus podcast if you want to support us there's a donate button on the website at dguspodcast.com on the for-profit side of the house if you want to support us you can uh well i mean you can subscribe to us on youtube it's free to you but we make a little bit of money off the ads or at least that's the goal and then uh 
you can subscribe to the Thought Lab stuff on on uh, Substack, or you can go to Don't Give Up the Ship Apparel. It's dgutsapparel.com. Get yourself some Naval Pride and Heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. Uh, a lot of cool stuff and a lot of options if you're able to uh, on the free side of the house. You know, just share, like, subscribe, review on all the podcast platforms on YouTube on on all the things, uh, and we'd greatly appreciate that. And with that, that's it. That's what I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship.